I'm going to get us started. I see our two speakers down in the crowd. I also sent out a message to Stock Talk Weekly. We'll see if he joins in. Getting Wolf back up here. Wolf, can you hear me? Yeah, now? I can hear you. Perfect. I hear you as well. How are we doing? Good. I was having some glitches beforehand trying to accept the co-host. It still seems like it's glitching on me, though. Oh, there we go. I'm up now. Okay. I see Brad and Austin. Are they... I sent the invites over. We'll get them up here in a second. I do just want to kind of quickly preface this with a point and uh, what we hope to get out of the spaces over this next hour or so. I did just put the tweet out. So if any of our listeners down below want to go in and interact with that at all, get it sent out to all of our audiences a little bit more, that would be fantastic. But more or less, we love, I'm here, I'm a long-term investor and I, and I really do love it. And, you know, on FinTwit, on the spaces, there's so many people talking about live trading, Q&A, a lot of great stuff, technical analysis, short-term stuff, but it really felt like there just wasn't enough spaces talking about long-term investor. When you really look at people who are involved in the market, the average person is a long-term investor, and we really want to speak to them more often. So point of the space, we like to kind of go through trending topics, whether it's you know companies that reported earnings and doing deep dives into how the, the company did doing just kind of deep dives in generals or just kind of going through on theses um, just to kind of the entire purpose of this is to really be educational and, and for you guys to be able to take stuff to put into your own game and not only just to put into your own game, but to test out as well. Um, so, you know, people will be saying stuff, saying numbers and, and, you know, you could hear that and think that's great about the stock and that's good to learn more about a company. I believe uh, Austin might be talking about Snowflake a little bit, those earnings. But I think the next level with this stuff is when you could take that and hear what someone is saying and then kind of apply to more to uh, why are they thinking this, what numbers are they going at, and, and kind of being able to put it into your own game and really understanding what's behind there. I think the best way to do that is hear what these amazing, amazing people are doing. So, Brad, uh, enough of my, uh, my soliloquy at the start. I, I want to throw it over to you, hear how your week has been so far. What's up? Um, do we have any earnings this week? Do we have any major uh, companies? Uh, you know, doing shareholder meetings or anything like that? Uh, so JFrog had a had an investor conference with JP Morgan and actually I'm still reading through that. So nothing, um, no, no, no valuable insight to provide there, but I'll, I'll cover it on Saturday. Um, the only adding I've done this week was in connection with with uh, Snapchat's announcement of um, of probably ending up below their um, the low point of their EBITDA and the revenue guide. And I don't own Snapchat and, and didn't didn't um, buy it after that announcement. But I, I do own a large position in Trade Desk and I, I do or the Trade Desk. Sorry, I always forget to say the uh, I do own a large position in Meta and I do own a large position in Match Group. So three companies that um, are either intimately connected or, or at least materially connected to the ad market. So definitely felt pain from that. But um, so I, I guess maybe just for Trade Desk specifically. Uh, why I use that as kind of an opportunity to lean in instead of lean away um, is is that Trade Desk one one of the one of the best parts about this business is is the sheer diversification they have between channels. So forty um, percent of their business comes from video, forty percent from display, and then the rest from audio and, and, and some other categories. And so they when when one when one channel is not doing super well, they can readily pivot using their platform, which really just aggregates every single impression that that's available in their platform and pivot to pushing um, chief marketing officer dollars somewhere else. So um, specifically for the trade desk, I mean, if you think about their largest segment, which is connected TV, which is streaming, and you think about the fact that we've had Netflix and we've had HBO Max um, and we've had Disney Plus all in the last several months saying, yeah, well, we're, we're, we're going to embrace AVOD or advertising video on demand a little bit more than we were anticipating doing so in the past. That is a massive tailwind for Trade Desk, not, not to mention the fact that midterms are coming up and we've already gotten dialogue um, from both the company and, and also from Wall Street saying that spend is going to be on on par, if not surpassed, the 2020 presidential cycle. So um, there, there are certainly tailwinds to enjoy for Trade Desk and, and there's certainly insulation in its business model from away from things like IDFA, which has had no material impact on its business because of the sheer quantity of first party data it has to, to use instead. And also, I, I want to talk about the fact that every time there, there's macro turbulence in the ad market or, or in, in the economy overall, um, any any time we get we get pain, and any time we get uh, maybe consolidation and, and and some of the weaker players maybe fading away, that's when the trade desk really shines. I mean, chief marketing officers are are always 
are always fixated on milking as much out of a out of a marketing dollar as they possibly can. But that becomes even more uh, of an intimate concern when things get bad and when their when their budgets get slashed and tightened and, and when they have to be even more careful about where they're spending. And when that happens, what we've seen in the past and what management is expecting us to see this time and and they're always uh, wonderfully conservative and pessimistic with their guidance, which 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 is always greatly appreciated in, in public markets. Um, but but they're they're fully anticipating these chief marketing officers to again pivot to the trade desk to get this more granular, to get this more data driven, to get this 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 more one on one means of, of targeting per impression so that that's not spraying millions and millions of dollars across millions and millions of impressions on, on display or, or on linear TV or on cable. That's that's doing so with the trade desk and purchasing one impression at a time. Um, with 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 bid management to know exactly what that impression is worth and, and to, to maximize return on at return on ad spend, which is which is where trade desk shines. So when that becomes even more important, which it is right now, um, that that really motivates the, these large customers kind of to gravitate towards this platform. And, and that has played out over the last quarter, which which was the result of their really, really strong performance, which which happens every three three months. I, I mean, this is a beat and raise machine. Um, but but they're also uh, also the upbeat guidance that they offer going forward where um, where they, they offered. So, so the confusion with trade desk is they always say, um, here's our revenue guidance. But there's two very important words in, in front of that revenue guidance, which is at least. So so they're at least guidance, which they handsomely comfortably beat every single three months was above what analysts were expecting. So um, and, and that that was that, that that wasn't too long ago. So I understand macro is, is very chaotic and very turbulent and. And that's kind of what, what Snapchat alluded to um, in terms of their guide down. Um, but but these companies have been talking about a terrible macro environment, Match Group and Facebook and, and the trade desk for a long time. And the upbeat guidance that, that Snapchat offered in their last quarter was honestly, um, it was surprising. It, it, it was against the norm. It, it was against the grain in, in terms of them um, kind of seeing blue skies ahead. And, and so the guidance that the three companies that they, at least they're in my portfolio that have been offered contemplates macro not not even um getting better but but either staying status quo or, or worsening so so i don't think um these companies are as vulnerable as, as snapchat was uh to to this guy down and, and that's that's sort of the rationale as to why i used it as an opportunity to lean in and then i'm going to talk about one more thing and then pass it over to austin because i know he's got some really interesting things to talk about with snowflake and i don't um know that company well enough to comment um to comment or get offer any valuable insight but uh, sticking with that advertising theme, Facebook had their inaugural messaging conversations 2022 event uh, last week, which there was a lot of interesting dialogue out of and, and just to me highlighted how much value there is uh, to be milked out of WhatsApp that they haven't even tried to do yet. Um, so just a few case studies that I wanted to talk about. Uh, one is with Uber um, and and they have so they, they've they've integrated kind of a WhatsApp to ride. Um, Uber application within WhatsApp in India and in a, in a few cities in India. Um, and, and I'm going to say this stat, but I should preface it with saying Uber is a, a very broadly, ubiquitously almost known brand across the world. So this stat is, is quite surprising that, that 33% of the riders that WhatsApp delivered uh, to this program are brand new to Uber. Uh, usually they, they get a microscopic percentage in terms of new riders as a percentage of overall business. So that was um, as Dara Kashrashawi said, a, a, a pleasant surprise that it didn't expect. Um, and, and also him saying things like that this is the number one means of communication outside of the U.S. and in developing markets. And they are wholeheartedly focused on, on expanding this pilot program throughout India and then into Brazil and into their other major markets uh, internationally. So um, just just in encouraging news there. Uh, another one with Aldi, um, a grocer I'm, I'm sure most of you know of. Uh, reduced time to response with, with Messenger from 180 seconds to three seconds um, and was able to reallocate uh, about one in 12 uh, people from their customer service staff to areas like business development. And, and this was just, this was a consistent theme of one case study after another. So I won't go into all of them. But what I will say is that, that WhatsApp and Messenger compared to SMS and compared to email and compared to all these other means of, of reaching people is definitely a force multiplier in, in that it makes um, through automation of, of mundane tasks, it makes customer service teams far more efficient and, and, and frees up a lot of time for them so that they can pivot away from um, 
from kind of massaging poor interactions with customers to focusing on creating more great interactions with, with customers and growing sales and growing cash flow, which is at the end of the day, what we're all really focused on. So a lot of interesting things came out of that, uh, came out of that meeting. Uh, if you want to read the entire synopsis that I've written, everything I do is free and you can find it at, or you can just click into my bio and, and, and there's a one click um, subscription to get you to the site. Um, but covered that. Um, and, and there was a bunch of other stuff, but I'm going to stop there because I know Austin has a, a lot of interesting stuff to cover and, and I'll, I'll save a few more interesting nuggets for later on in the call. Awesome. Yeah, Brad, definitely do appreciate that. First of all, make sure you're checking out everything Brad is doing. The link is in his bio. Definitely love having him on these spaces. We'll come back to you. Definitely a lot of good stuff there. Quickly, I'm looking at Trade Desk. That move on the 23rd is off of Snapchat, right? There wasn't like a, an earnings or anything like that. It was moving off the Snapchat report. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty okay. wild. I think it was like a like a 20% down move at, at yeah. some point, and, and it's recovered a lot of it. I mean, I, I, I bought a little bit. Obviously, if I had my time machine, I would have bought a lot more. But um, I hope, hopefully one day Elon Musk will, will, will be able to deliver that invention to me so that I can be an amazing, perfect trader like everybody else on Twitter. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, should, I should stop throwing shade and pass it over to um, our other wonderful speakers because there is no shade to throw in this panel because everyone here is great. Agreed. Everyone here is great. There are, there are some people online who like to call themselves oracles and stuff like that. And maybe, you know, um, but these people up here are absolutely fantastic. Um, Austin, I want to bring you into it. I've been following you for a, a while now, actually. Uh, it, it's kind of crazy on social media how long it feels. Uh, but yeah, I would love to bring you into this. We'd love to hear some of your thoughts on long-term investing. Maybe kind of to start this out, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and who you are. And then maybe we can start out with anything kind of top of mind as we were kind of getting you into the space you really want to start out with. Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me. Can everybody hear me? It's the first time I've ever actually yep. talked in a space, I think. You loud and clear. Um, awesome. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me here. Um, I mean, ton of respect for Brad and Wolf and Bullish and, you know, all these spaces. I think there's all kinds of different styles and you talked about a little bit earlier, but you know, a lot of people on Twitter that are on there active daily, we get in this mindset that everybody's like us, right? Because we're kind of in this echo chamber. And so um, there's a lot of day traders and short-term traders and swing traders and all that stuff's great. That works for some people. But like you said, I think um, long-term investing, even though it's it's not as fun, especially in times like this when the markets just crush everybody, um, but it it is truly the way that I think like most people, most working professionals can grow long-term wealth. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do it, but, but long-term investing is, is what I have done and what's worked for me. And um, the reason I'm saying all that and the reason I'm a long-term investor is because I've uh, been investing since like 2011. Um, I was in college at that time. I graduated and then joined the Air Force on active duty for seven years. And so I was busy. I didn't have the time to like look at the markets or anything like that. I was really lucky and worked right alongside somebody that uh, was an investor. And that's how I kind of learned about it. They were a Motley Fool subscriber. They were talking about uh, how they had owned Netflix. This was in like 2011, 2012. They'd owned it and made some ridiculous like, I don't know, five, six, ten thousand percent return on Netflix or whatever. Um, and then they had a couple more stories where they just had these amazing returns. And um, prior to that, I had seen the Motley Fool stuff and thought it was all a scam and a gimmick because I hated their marketing. And it just felt like, you know, every other advertisement out there that that tricks you into subscribing to some service. Um, but in hearing that, I, I decided to give it a chance because I respected this person. And I believe what they're saying. Um, so that's that was how I learned about investing was I became a subscriber to the Motley Fool back in 2011, 2012 just started consuming their stuff and really took on the mantra of David Gardner, the rule breaker style investing where, you know, he's, he's okay with owning expensive and overpriced stocks because his, his time frame is a lot longer than kind of the short quarter to quarter stuff we see out there, or even day to day stuff. Um, and because of that, when, when you set it up that way and, and your time frame is years or even potentially decades if, if you're investing money to not need yourself, but then ideally for, you know, whatever, make a difference in the world for future generations, whatever you're investing for. Um, if, if you're saving, you know, chances are you're not going to need the money that you're investing also. So that's a good thing. Um, but, but that mindset and, and that um, 
acceptance of being a long-term investor and knowing there's going to be ups and downs gives you the ability to make a lot more mistakes than, than somebody that is, you know, really focused on day to day or maybe focused on managing other people's money and those, those short-term pressures. Um, and so I think that's a beautiful thing about long-term investing. And then, and then also it comes down to like position sizing, how much does each position make up in your portfolio? And, and so for all of those reasons, I'm a big fan of long-term investing and like, yes, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to, uh, we're going to have, you know, if you can be right 40 to 60% of the time and your time horizon is long enough, then, then you're going to do just fine over time. Um, and so, yeah, I was on active duty until like 2018 uh, got out. And the reason I was able to, to get out, we needed to, I, I loved what I did, but we just needed to spend more time together as a family. Um, I mean, investing in the fact that we were living below our means was the reason I was able to make that change from the military and be with my family more because uh, we had, you know, the runway to do that, even though I didn't have any idea what job I'd be able to get because I have a criminal justice degree from college. Um, and so I did, I was consult, I consulted for a year and like the, it was a, business and technology consulting firm called Slalom. Um, it was an awesome experience. They are uh, a massive, a huge partner for AWS, for Google Cloud Platform, for Salesforce, um, for Alteryx. And so that was the time frame, 2018-ish, 2017, 2018. I really started to learn about um, some of these cloud services and, and technology style stocks and just how, um, really how outdated the infrastructure and the technology that some of the most impressive companies on the fortune 500 list are using. They're using databases still, even today that are, you know, 15 years old. And, and so they're still in the process of ripping that stuff out. And, and those things take years. And so um, got exposed to cloud and, and, you know, tech or SaaS style stocks, then realized there's a ton of runway left. Um, and that was back in 2018. And obviously some of that has played out, especially with the, the, um, uh, whatever acceleration, I guess you could say from, from COVID and everybody thinking like digital is everything. Um, so yeah, things got, you know, way bit up, way too expensive. Um, I made mistakes and owned things that were way too expensive. And, and so now we're at a point where they've sold off a ton and, and I think there's great opportunities. Um, and then, yeah, just to, yeah, the rest of my experience, I, uh, I then worked remote at a startup cause we wanted to move to Florida. So we live in Florida. That was 2019, 2020. I was part of the seven investing crew for a little bit because I was able to do that on the side. Those were some Motley Fool guys I had worked with, um, still friends and, and fans of them. Uh, and then I had a really cool opportunity to join Social Capital. I applied for the Emerging Managers Program uh, from, did that from like 2020 to, or getting the dates mixed up here, 2000, I guess 2021 to early 2022. Um, and ever, I mean, if you've been watching the market and you've been watching growth style stocks, the types of stocks I own, it was a really tough period. Um, I learned a lot of things about being a professional investor, which I am not and never had been. Um, and then ultimately decided that for the end, you know, there's whatever, there's trolls out there that, that troll people for, and me specifically for like making that chain, that, that jump and then leaving that career. And everybody's like, how was your performance? How did you do? You're horrible obviously my, I trailed the market because of the stocks that I owned. I'm not going to talk about um, exact performance. Cause I'm not like, it's not my thing to talk about. It wasn't my money that I was managing. Um, but there's a lot. And, and this is, you know, the great thing about Fintwit is like, you can learn so much and it's free. Right. But there's also personal stuff going on in people's lives. And uh, I learned that managing money professionally was stressful um, and that it also didn't necessarily align with, with, what I wanted to do in the world of finance and relating to more people like me who don't, don't come from an investing background. Um, you know, when I was managing money like that, I wasn't able to talk publicly about stocks and my positions and my portfolio. And, and one of the things that I've always liked doing was just kind of documenting my journey along the way. Um, and so that's what I want to be able to do now. And I was able to join, I have an, I mean, I also had an amazing opportunity to join common stock, which went into my decision to leave social capital. And so that's where I'm at now. I, I mean, I um, work at common stock, which is a pretty cool investing platform where you can connect portfolios and track performance and stuff. Um, and uh, I just get to be involved with this whole era of social investing and hopefully empowering more people to learn about investing and, and invest with their money. Um, and I just, 
I also, Brad, I was hoping you're going to keep talking because Snowflake, which I was yapping about on Twitter the last two days, uh, has recovered almost all of its loss for the morning. It was down like 14% after hours, and now it's down only 1.5% on the day. Um, and I was out there saying it was going to bounce today. So um, obviously, when I'm right, I'm going to, I'm only going to point out the things that I'm right about and never the things that I'm wrong about. So um, yeah, I mean, it's easy to time the market and day trade, like I said, this whole time. I really love when people can kind of come in and cause you, you learn so much from those mistakes. And what I think the really, really big key is and where you can take your game exponentially higher is when you can learn from the mistakes of others. I think that's such a big thing. So having those people not afraid to come in, like everyone on social media wants to flex and do whatever, but I love following those people who are real and you can get those lessons fun from. So I love hearing that. Um, I do know you, you own Snowflake, and we were talking a little bit about that. I would love to dig a little bit more into that into a second. Yeah. I do want to bring Stock Talk into it, but Austin, is there any other kind of points you want to hop on there in, the, in this first part? Uh, you know, just so we're talking about long-term investing here, right? And if you're out there on Twitter and you are a long-term investor and you own any stock that's associated with growth whatsoever, um, you're doing really bad right now. And um, it's easy to feel like you're an idiot and you don't belong investing. And maybe that's a lesson learned for people. We, we don't want to deal with the volatility of individual stocks. And so maybe the lesson there is to own ETFs or index funds or invest through your work 401k or whatever. Um, but also don't feel like a complete idiot if you made mistakes and owned stocks that were too expensive because all of these investment banks out there ran up the price targets. Um, and so trust me, if you're a retail and, or an individual investor, you are not the only person owning these overpriced stocks that have all come down. Um, and a lot of crazy things happened over these past two years. So um, don't get discouraged, I guess, is what I would like leave people with. Um, but then take lessons from it. Like, right. Like don't, you know, don't invest money that, that um, just don't be reckless and careless. And every, that's different for everybody. But if you're not reckless and careless, then the act of investing and saving your money, even if you lose money on your investments over the short term, the fact that you're doing that probably means you're going to be in a better off financial situation anyways, because you you're in the process of investing. You have that mindset and you're not just out there blowing your money on whatever. Um, so yeah, don't, don't let all these uh, experts and geniuses make you feel like you don't belong. And that's one thing that man, David Gardner, he's always made me feel like I belong and like I can be an investor. Um, sure. That's part of their business model, but, but it's just a really empowering thing. And that's, that's what I hope to do for people out there. Yeah, it's definitely a very, very powerful thing for anyone who's getting destroyed. You know, you shouldn't let that get you discouraged from the market. It should let you get, get you motivated to kind of figure out what you can do in the future to kind of change that and really make some money on it. Cause there is money to be made in the yeah. market. And for some people that's, you know, trading, they can do stuff there. Um, but there's a lot of different investing styles that can really work that. And I feel like, it wasn't the cool thing to come in and it's not the cool thing to come in and invest in ETFs. And maybe this was a, a good lesson for people that, that that might be the actually the area they should be if they don't want to focus on the market. But I digress. Definitely a lot more we could talk there. And, and I think some good points to even unpack a little bit later on. But Stock Talk, I do want to bring you into it. Here's some of your initial thoughts. Um, anything you want to kind of talk about with long-term investing? I would love to, we could talk about lithium. I know it was the joke on the last space, but truthfully, I would really love to hear your thoughts on kind of how a long-term investor can stay macro literate when know all these macro events that are happening, know what the Fed's going to doing and like kind of watch this stuff and really kind of understand that and kind of start bringing that into their investing game. I think it's just about knowing when to allocate. You know, I think, again, I've said this many times before, but I personally, and there's different schools of thought and there's different things that work for different people, but you know, I'm fine with the principle of dollar cost averaging on a regular basis, but I'm not fine with the idea that that principle should be immune to, you know, being paused or resumed in times of um, unpredictable, like, I'm trying to find a way to phrase this that that, that would make sense. I think, to you were, I think you were going to that made a lot of sense to me. The market's unpredictable right now. Fed's yeah, but it's not. Stuff. It's not even just. Un, it's not even just that it's unpredictable. It's it's that like the market operate. The reason that bull markets predominate, you know, most of the years that that the stock market has been in existence is because a there's a bull bias, 
People like to buy and hold stocks. So there's a bull bias. That's the first thing. Uh, but more than that, it's just that, you know, when there's not economic headwinds, stocks are you know, the best ROI place to put your money. And so, you know, traditionally speaking, when there's not any crazy economic event and we see what happens to the markets when there is, you know, things like the financial crisis, you know, the dot com crash, there's, you know, a historical precedent, a modern precedent for uncertainty in the economy causing stock market collapses um, and or, or even uncertainty with regard to things like COVID, like the COVID crash, you know, wasn't necessarily economic and en- it ended up being economic because we had to shut down the global economy. But my point is, is that, you know, trying to trying to buy in any macroeconomic climate is I just think like a suspension of logic. You're like, you know, dollar cost averaging works in a bull market, but when everything is selling off, you know, there's people that were calling bottoms three months ago. There's people that were calling bottoms five months ago. We've been selling off most things for, you know, depending on what, what sectors you're looking at anywhere between five to eight months. And if you weren't in energy or, you know, some commodity names and, you know, some banks earlier in the year, but even that trend faded off. It's it's hard to find places to outperform and you have to think like a capital allocator if you're a long-term investor. So I think, you know, knowing or, or being aware of macroeconomic conditions is super important to any investor because if you're choosing when to allocate capital, I think that's one thing that can tell you when. And you may not like bottom tick the market, you know, as a result of that, you might be late to a rally. Like, you know, somebody was asking me today, like, could this be the turnaround rally where we, where we go back to all time highs? And I'm like, I don't think that's likely, but if we get this rally into the next CPI print and the next CPI print is dramatically cooler than expected, which again, I don't expect, but if that happens, then yeah, this could be the start of the bottom. But what's the likelihood of that? And you also have to ask yourself, like, you may have your own metrics and principles for when you want to deploy capital. And that's fine. And I think you should. But you should also ask yourself in in a logical and as objective way as possible. What's the likelihood or incentive for institutions to do what I'm doing? And that's to me where the macroeconomics come in, because if you're deploying 100 billion in capital, you're not just considering the P.E. ratio of a company or the P.E. ratio of an index or a key level. You're not considering these things. If you're deploying that much money, you're considering, like, is this the right climate in which to be deploying 100, 200, 300 billion in capital into equities? Or is it better held as cash or is it better deployed into real estate or whatever? You know, there's a number people I think people sometimes when they're trading stocks or people who do trade stocks a lot or who invest a lot kind of get this like vacuum, you know, market in a vacuum perspective on money and on capital allocation. Like there's other places that people can put their money and they do. And so you have to ask yourself, is this the right environment to be in a volatile asset? And is it the right environment not for me to make that judgment, but for institutions who really move the market to make that judgment? Because you can get short covering days where your favorite stock is up 20%. You can get those in a bear market. But if you want those moves to be sustained and you want the stocks to actually get into real technical reversals and the price to recover substantially, you need institutional support in the market. Because when the Fed's gone, which they're going to start being gone as of June 1st, and you don't still don't have institutional interest, this can get worse. And so I think there not only do investors sometimes ignore the macroeconomic picture in terms of when they're going to allocate capital, but traders do it all the time. You know, I see people that are like, Oh, this is the bottom on spy technically for me. And it's like, okay. And, and they start getting calls like three months out. So it's just, it's odd to me that, that people think that way. That was fantastic to hear. It's definitely very interesting when people, everyone wants to try and time a bottom. Everyone wants to try and time a top. It's impossible. It's impossible to do it consistently. You can get lucky in there once. 
Um, but no one's going to be able to consistently do that. Loved all your thoughts there. Um, but kind of just want to dig in like surface level. You have to, to really understand this stuff. It's not rocket science, but it takes a little bit of effort to really understanding what's happening with you, with more macro conditions. You know, there's stuff intertwining. Um, yeah, it, I just kind of want to hear your thoughts a little bit on, on where you kind of you started out personally trying to understand it a little bit more. Was it kind of just ingrained in your life and just around there and you just kind of have always been interested in it? Or do we have anything with like YouTube? You started to dig into a little bit more with macro or economy and everything like that. Are you asking me? I'm sorry. Honestly, Brad, if we want to, we could throw it to you. That, well, that was over to Stock Talk. Um, oh, I didn't know that was over to me. I thought you were going to Brad. My bad. Well, guess what? That poor hosting for me. I, I did not do an question. So if Stock Talk wants to take that, all that's, that's all him. We're gonna move the grading down on the spaces down by one for the host and continue moving on. Uh, Stock yeah, Talk. No one thought it was going to me. Come on. <laughs> no, I it thought was it was going to you, Austin. That's <laughs> now I feel better. Thanks. Oh, perfect. I love it. First of all, in general, any of our our speakers up here, if you guys have anything here, someone say anything. Feel free to chime in. Keep the conversation. Best when these things are free flowing. Just wanted to get that out there. But Stock Talk, I want to hear a little bit about um, where you kind of started out getting uh, informed on the macro topic. How can people kind of take that first step? You know, it's not rocket science, but it's also not super simple. There's time you have to put into it. I would love to kind of hear how you started getting yourself informed in that area. I mean, for me, man, you know, most of my education was in like I was in med school for three years. So for me, like my all the stuff that I learned about trading, investing, economics, like I kind of did that mostly outside of on my own time and a lot of that was on youtube i'm not a big like book reader quote unquote like i don't read a ton of full length books i just feel like i don't know i can get most of the information i need out of a book in a shorter format so i like i do like audiobooks sometimes which i where i can listen to them while i'm doing whatever where i don't have to you know actively read it um but i like you know youtube videos i think there's so many good youtube videos on trading, investing. Um, I watched probably thousands and thousands of hours of YouTube when I first started trading and investing just to learn like basic concepts. I also spent a lot, spent a lot of time when I first started on sites, like basic sites like Investopedia, where I would be listening to people talk about, about stocks when I first started, or I'd be listening to people talk about options trading and I would hear words that I didn't know and I would just go look them up. I mean, I think there's, it really depends on your style of learning. Some people need to read a book about fundamental analysis or about macroeconomics or about, you know, you can get, um, there's a million books out there on the basics of macroeconomics and on supply and demand and inflation and how hyperinflation is different from, you know, the, the inflation historically and how you can look at, uh, you know, recovery, Fed, pot, top, uh, tightening of policy. You can look at QE versus QT. You can look at QE versus QT cycles. There's like books on all of these topics. Um, stagflation, which is a fear that a lot of people have now about the economy. You know, we'll see what happens um, on the next GDP print. But my, my point is, is that you can find out all these terms through a book, if that's your medium of learning, through YouTube, if that's your medium of learning, through, you know, just Googling things, if that's your medium, medium of learning. There's a million sources out there that are free. Um, you don't really need to pay for a crash course on macroeconomics. If you're in college, you know, I, know, I know a lot of new traders are who are interested in macroeconomics. You can take a course on it. Like I took a course on, on macroeconomics when I was in college. I have an MBA, but I mean, I took several courses on macroeconomics. So, you know, you can take them even if you don't, your major's not in that. If you're like an avid trader and you're, uh, you know, interested in learning about that, you can take a course on it as an elective or whatever it may be. And if you don't want to do that, then you can also learn about it the way that I learned about most things to do with trading and investing, which is really just through the internet. I mean, I know that's such a generic kind of lame answer, but I really feel like people learn differently. And I feel like prescribing people like like books, for example, is one thing where I mean, I personally don't I get distracted. Like I don't have a great attention span for books. And I feel like I want my information in a more concise manner. And that's just the way I learn. Some people love books. But like if somebody were to tell me, 
hey, you know, stock dog, go learn about this topic and here's a book to read, I wouldn't read it. And so I think a lot of people are discouraged from learning about topics because they feel like the suggestions provided to them don't fit their like style of learning, I guess. Some people are visual learners. You know, for me, I like videos and I like concise like summaries of concepts where I can just read them, think about it, understand. But again, depends on the, the way you learn. There's a million different resources out there. Um, I think even Gerg has a great um, post for books, if I'm not mistaken, that he compiled. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a million resources out there. Find a style, figure out the style that you learn best, whether it's visual through videos or books or, you know, summaries and just go on the internet and look for something to, to fit that style of learning. Um, but I think, I, I don't think you need to be a macroeconomic specialist for the purpose of investing or trading, but you need to understand the basics. Like, you know, like I said, like supply and demand, inflation, QE, QT cycles, uh, you know, general monetary policy principles from the federal reserve what the fed can and can't do what fighting the fed really means like you, you won't be able to understand these these quips and phrases that people use to describe these situations if you don't you know a lot of people don't even know the powers of the fed and like that's a great starting point especially in this climate um you know, understanding basic supply and demand, understanding commodities, understanding demand destruction. Um, you could go on for hours about key terms that you need to know, but a lot of it's about understanding the terms, because if you want to understand the literature or the conversations around it, which will give you a more complex understanding, you have to know the basic terms. And I think a lot of people don't know the basic terms or skim over them and don't really understand what they mean. Um, and and the, a lot of them don't understand the basic concepts either. You know, until you have a firm grant grasp on the basic concepts of macroeconomics, it's going to be difficult for you to make judgment calls from an investing standpoint. But I think the the overlap is great. It really depends to what extent you want to be literate in it. But I think being literate in it to some degree is almost essential, especially in a climate where people who don't understand liquidity and you know quantitative easing and quantitative tightening that's about to start, and they don't understand how rate hikes you know, impact the supply of money and they don't understand why future cash flow uh, companies are being discounted more steeply than companies with higher current free cash flow. Like that's stuff that will make immediate sense with a basic understanding of economics and macroeconomics. That was fantastic. As always, Stock Talk definitely agree with pretty much every single one of those points. Every single point. I don't even know why I threw the pretty in there because um, it looked good. Uh, we'll move on from that. For anyone who heard that and wants to kind of get anything written down, don't worry. The space is recorded. You'll be able to see that after. You'll be able to rehear my terrible comment there. Also, uh, we're, we're losing the downgrades as the moderator, but we move. We keep moving on. Big shout out to you, Stock Talk. I really did love the point about just searching up a term you don't know online. So many people, I feel like, feel stuff or see stuff and just have simple questions that are just kind of like definition stuff. And you kind of, that's really the first layer of this stuff understanding what people are saying so you can understand why stuff is happening. Um, so for anyone who's that, I think that's a great first place to start out doing this stuff, hearing a term you don't know, figuring out what it means. But uh, very much, very much uh, love getting you on these spaces. Stock talk, as always. Maybe next week we you want to talk a little bit of lithium. Perfect. Keeping us moving. Brad, I, I want to bring you back into it a little bit, see if there was any thoughts or comments there, thoughts or any, anything that has come up. A little bit more and then i would uh if we want to talk a little more trade desk we could i can come in with some questions after sure i guess maybe just sticking with the macro theme that was a, a great um segue into maybe some other some other things to talk about in that in that category i think um there's maybe some um there's maybe the idea that that this fed put that the eventual pivot from really hawkish commentary back to well maybe um the neutral rate is a little lower than we think it is well maybe balance sheet runoff doesn't need to be as aggressive as we think it needs to be I think this is a little bit too uh, tied in some people's minds to equity markets. I, I, I don't really think, and I, I'm a growth stock investor, so I wish the Fed cared about my, my growth stock forward multiples, but I really don't think they do. Um, I, I think they're wholeheartedly fixated on on credit markets, on on, on, no, on news like um, companies such as, I think a few weeks ago was Carvana that was having trouble placing 11% notes and had to sell them for 12 or 13%. Um, that, that, that triple B rated corporate debt and, and the spreads we're seeing there 
Um, I, I, th- I really think that's what they're going to focus on. And we are starting to see um, real signs of, of liquidity coming out of credit markets and spreads widening. Um, and that's going to continue again with, as Stock Talk Weekly said, QT not even starting until um, a, 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 about a week from now. So the liquidity draining out of markets is going to continue. And 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 we are going to see we, we I mean, we will see a CPI fall. It's about how quickly we see the CPI and the PPI fall and, and how quickly we can get back to that that neutral rate that the Fed is comfortable with so that we can finally stop, um, which this is going to take a while to play out, but we can finally stop sucking money uh, out of the economy and stop raising rates um, and become more accommodative. accommodative. And, and we are not not there yet. Um, I think um, it's it's sort of clear that we're not there yet. But um, at the same time, I am a predominantly microeconomically focused investor. So while I, while I am ex- exercising a lot more caution than I normally do, um, I'm doing so in kind of my own own little unique way. So um, cash bans for me range from five to 25%. And right now I'm pushing 22%. Um, so you can kind of uh, un- understand that that that's me expressing um, more caution uh, than, I, than I normally do. And as I've been saying over the last several weeks, I'm, I'm letting the cash infusions be bigger than the accumulation pace right now so that I can let that cash position just naturally build. Um, and then fortunate to be in a place where I have disposable income to be adding to the accounts. But I, I don't think it's time um, to really lean in um, for me, the, even for me, the microeconomically focused stock picker um, to go from 22 percent to 15 to 10 percent cash. I really think it's time. I, I'm not really looking to get to push that up to 25 or 30 or 35 percent, but I'm in absolutely no hurry uh, to watch that fall because I, I do think um, we're, I mean, things like, yes, the CPI is cooling off, but then we have things like um, the Chinese economy, which is now coming out of their own lockdown, and those supply ports are going to reopen back up, and and that'll place more pressure on diesel prices and oil prices, and so there's so many puts and takes happening right now in in, in these markets that make it extremely difficult to kind of quantify where uh, where inflation is going and what the Federal Reserve will actually have to do to c- combat that, because that's what they're wholeheartedly focused on right now. Employment numbers are very strong, and so so they should be wholeheartedly focused on inflation, um, but that that's just kind of a really long way of saying that's why I'm kind of approaching accumulation and, and cash pile like I am right now. And I, I don't really anticipate that changing for the next few months, despite the fact that that you will see me posting messages um, like slowly accumulating to these names and that that's going to continue. But the accumulation is not going to accelerate until the backdrop kind of brightens and 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 the current um, stops going strongly against these companies and, and, and starts moving a little bit with them. Um, but enough on macro from me, because I am a stock picker and, and I am microeconomically focused and a 22% cash position does mean I'm 78% invested. Um, so kind of just pivoting um, to another interesting piece of news last week that I wanted to talk about um, before we run out of time was was news on a match group in Google. Um, so, I mean, there's been a restraining order filed by match group uh, for Google not allowing them to plug into APMs or alternative payment methods, which for Tinder users and for Hinge users, um, APMs are the preferred method at, at about three times the pace of, of Google Pay's method. So kind of, so Google was forcing them to plug every single transaction into their own um, Google Play payment method, and that was really weighing on margins and, and and weighing on things like consumer data sharing because Google is a walled garden that's very careful about what data they let leak out of that walled garden. Um, so if the transactions are happening under their own payment stack, they they have a lot more flexibility and leeway to kind of keep that data for themselves. Uh, but the news this week, or last week actually now, uh, was the restraining order actually being removed. And, and Match Group, in exchange for creating a $40 million escrow account, which is which is quite fine to me, um, got guarantees that they will not be kicked out of the Google Play Store for allowing their users to readily plug into alternative payment methods, um, that any upgrades allowing for more alternative payment, alternative payments and more choice and more flexibility will be accepted by Google. Um, and that they will, and, and this was maybe the most under the radar piece of the news that, that I was really encouraged about, that Google will now readily share any and all consumer data that is at all attached to Match Group uh, w- with the company. So um, not only are they gaining probably what's going to be a 150 basis point or a 1.5% margin tailwind for 2022, uh, but they're also gaining a lot more holistic of an idea of their of their customers and their, their profiles and their wants and their needs so that they can target um, deals in a more granular in a more um, meaningful and data-driven and relevant way than they have been able to in the past. And I think connecting that back to the first idea I was talking about with macro is really interesting because that was a fantastic piece of news for Match Group. And you saw the stock price not even react, it didn't care, didn't matter. 
And, and, and I think that's just a sign of the times. Fundamental, good fundamental news is something that I'm both very focused on right now to kind of identify the companies that I think are going to be the winners coming out of this. But it's but fundamental news is also very much so on the back burner of everyone's mind. So a great piece of news out of Match Group, a great quarter out of Duolingo with a massive beat and raise on the top and bottom line, that's pretty much shrugged off. And, and while that's frustrating right now and probably will continue to be frustrating for the next few months, what that is doing is, is just winding up the spring, winding up the clock for these companies that when when or if fundamental performance continues to, to outperform or be exceedingly strong, that will eventually get rewarded. And it will eventually get rewarded with a company like Duolingo now trading, well, well trading for about 10 times gross profit, can't use EBITDA because they're, they're investing all gross profit dollars back into growth, but it's gone from about 30 times sales to 10 times gross profit. So multiple compression could absolutely continue, but we've got a lot of multiple compression, which means when things don't suck so badly and when growth is in vogue and, and when investing gross profit dollars back into your business um, to take more market share is in vogue, that will be rewarded and it will be rewarded most for the companies that have been able to um, stay extremely liquid, stay extremely successful during these daunting times. And, and so that's where I'm focused, um, paying really close attention to identifying those firms in my portfolio that I want to spend my time and attention and capital on in, in, in the next cycle, but, but making sure I'm staying extremely nimble at this point in time so that I have the capital and the, the, the flexibility to take advantage of, of whenever that turn comes. I'm not, not trying to, I, I mean, I, I can guarantee you all in this chat that I will not time it perfectly, um, but, but that's kind of what I'm doing to raise my, my probability of success as, as we kind of maneuver through this really hectic backdrop. So uh, that turned into a really long chat, so I'll stop there, but, but pass it back to our other wonderful speakers and happy to talk more about some other stuff later on. Awesome, Brad. Back definitely you, do, definitely do appreciate that. I was trying to get the, the pause in there just in case someone else wanted to hop in before me. The, uh, the strategic five-second pause in there let some people, there are any thoughts, but I do love it. Uh, there, there's some thoughts in there I was thinking through it. Like, I am in the same boat as you. I am my portfolio. I am adding more cash to it than I am deploying to the market, or at least that's kind of how we're going with it. I, I am still adding a tiny bit to, uh, in places. I would love to hear where you are. For me, I'm a simple man, and I know Stock Talk might, might say whatever. Um, and I, I fully expect that we're going to be um, struggling for a little bit, and, I, and I'll have the chance to buy lower. But I'm a simple man. I see Disney at 100. I see Amazon at 2100, 2K, and I just struggle not to put in a, a tiny bit in there. So, uh, Brad, I want to keep this one in and make sure we get a chance to bring Austin back into it. Do you want to talk a little bit about Snowflake? But we'll, uh, you kind of said it yourself there. You're going very, very slow. But love to hear where you're kind of slowly moving into. Are there any ones that are kind of exciting for you or at least that are on the forefront there? Yeah, and, and this week it was, uh, selfishly for me, um, it was Snapchat's announcement and the turbulence that created the ripple effects through the advertising market that I, I sort of took advantage of. So uh, it was a little bit of an ad to Trade Desk, a little bit of a larger ad to Facebook or, or Meta Group, I get or Meta Platforms, or whatever the heck it's called at this point in time, um, at like like twelve times EBIT or something like that. Even at, and 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 I know people are saying, okay, well estimates are going to come down, but for Facebook specifically, the, the the slowing of their hiring pace, they're pulling back from reality lab spending. I actually see a, a decent probability of these estimates moving up for them. Just because of how much money they were planning on pouring in, into this segment of their business, it's going to be a money loser for a while. And they're now kind of pivoting away from that, which, which I think is, is, is management and leadership understanding where we are in, in macroeconomic cycles and, and how they need to kind of um, cater to wants and needs of, of their investor base right now. So that was the second one. And then Match Group was the third one. Uh, just, just talking about, I mean, that, that piece of news out of Google was really encouraging uh, for me. Um, Google, anytime Google gives concessions to somebody else, uh, that, that is, that is a notable piece of news to me. And, and that happened for match group. So, um, th those, those are the three companies in, in that ad tech sort of space in that social media and, and app space. But in, in, in that ad tech space, they all, they all play in there to a certain degree, trade desk more so than the other two, and then Facebook more so than match. But, um, I, I, I don't see snapchat struggling with with their da with their daily active user maintenance and, and and with their monetization as as really a red flag to, to any of these other companies especially because i view um the way that they've guided to 2022 is, is far more rational and far more um realistic than than what i kind of saw snapchat's guidance has and easy for me to say that um hindsight 2020 monday morning quarterbacking but um yeah that, that that's what i added to during the week um nothing else other than that and again small ads uh added using less cash than i than i added to my account 
in the last couple of weeks. And, and that that's kind of that's that's where I'm at. So I'll, I'll infuse some cash and then I, I'll use a, a small portion of that and make sure I'm not using all of that to, to make sure the cash pile continues to grow. And I, I do think that's going to continue for the next few months, at least. Fantastic. Appreciate that, Brad. Love having you on these spaces as always. One more time. Anyone down below, make sure you're following all these amazing speakers up here. Improve your Twitter timelines. Uh, but, but Austin, I want to bring you back into it. I haven't seen Snowflake. If uh, I know, I just saw the tweet earlier. If we did want to talk a little bit through uh, another company that has been doing some stuff recently of yours, uh, all all for that. But yeah, would love to give the floor back to you and hear some thoughts on uh, on maybe Snowflake or something else. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, a real quick thought on on macro stuff and what the average investor who um, I think for much of this conversation, we probably have not been speaking to or about the average long-term investor in just my opinion, when we're, when we're thinking about things like um, what are, what's going to cause institutions to buy or sell, like your average investor has just no idea about that. Um, And so the way that I'm kind of thinking about, like portfolio management and allocation and not saying it's the right way, but I think it's, it's what can work for people who are out there working jobs, not looking at the market all day um, is, is where are you at in the time frame of your accumulation in terms of uh, are you still working and, and getting money and investing and then in your overall portfolio. And so um, as a kind of a trying to, do a transparent project. I started a portfolio on February 15th of this year. Um, and the goal is to add $3,000 a month to that portfolio for, for 10 years, um, started it with $10,000. And so what that comes out to is $370,000 that I would be putting into that portfolio. And so if in that scenario, you're kind of simulating somebody that's just starting investing and building up a portfolio in a scenario like that with 10 years and, you know, 90% plus of the portfolio still to be added over time. I think it doesn't matter right now if, if you're buying money and a market goes down another 10, 20, or if you're buying money, if you're investing in a market and goes down another 10, 20% over the next six months or a year, um, as long as you're able to stick to your process and continue investing, which there's some variables there, if you lose your job or whatever, then you, you obviously can't fund a portfolio. Um, then, then it doesn't matter if, if you're completely wrong because the amount of money you have invested compared to what you will have invested in the future is so small where people really need to start to, to think about that and, and the hype phase and, and where we're at in the cycle and all that stuff is when they're five years from, from drawing on that investment or three years or whatever, or you as an individual investor, you set barriers for position sizes you may get uncomfortable if any position in your portfolio gets over 10% of the total value or 15% or whatever. So for the average investor, I think there's some ways that you can structure the way you invest to then make it so you don't have to worry about what's going on macro. Because even if you can predict what's going to happen in each CPI print or whatever, you still don't know what the market's going to do and what's priced in and what's not. Um, so there's ways I think you can set yourself up to invest for the long term, work a meaningful career, spend your time the way you want to, focus on your health, not just stare at the market all day and, and do just fine. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was macro stuff, not specific to Snowflake. So I can take a second and see if there's any questions or comments, but then happy to talk about um, Snowflake, especially because it was positive on the day. All right, we're back. We're green on the day for Snowflake, all the way back from a 14% drop after hours. Um, so That's yeah, quite you want to talk about Snowflake or you want to do you want any questions yeah. on what I just said about macro or the long-term stuff? That fourteen percent move is quite is quite huge. Um, no, I definitely do agree and hear what you're saying on the macro stuff, and I, and I do agree with you. Um, it doesn't really matter. It, it definitely you have to make sure that you're investing in those companies that will be around in that ten years um, or in that two years, in that three years, or whatever. That's why, like, I feel one hundred percent comfortable saying that for indexes in this market, um, maybe picking those individual stocks is a little bit more difficult, but. Yeah. Um, but for those individual indexes, for the average person, the average person investing in the market, the best thing you can do from a, a thousand point view is just dollar cost average into those indexes over time. And maybe yeah, you slow it down a little bit. Oh, well, let's see. We got Muji up here. I heard Snowflake mentioned and my, my ears were getting red. Perfect. Yeah. Wait, listen, Austin, maybe we, we go through a little bit on Snowflake and then Muji and whatever can hop off of it and we can uh, get some good discussion there. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, just be transparent. Snowflake's the largest position in, in this 
the portfolio that I'm sharing online here. Um, it's I, I've added to it yesterday. I added to it today. Um, and, and basically the reason that I'm, I've been bullish on it and I'm still bullish even after the earnings and when it was down immediately 14% is because um, I, I think oftentimes those reactions are opportunities if the underlying, the fundamentals of the business are either staying in line or strengthening. Um, and then, and then also just seeing the pattern recognition and every tech company that has reported um, has, has, dropped and then slowly we're starting to see see those drops get less and less or rebound or whatever and so it's just just by looking at that and the reactions it's starting to feel like um people are are less concerned and the reason is is because these valuations have have come more in line with reality right but um yeah so i mean snowflake is there it's hard to find a company that has had the amount of revenue they have and grown at the rate that they've grown. Um, and what tells me that their model is sustainable is the one of the most important metrics I think you can look at in SaaS, which technically Snowflake's not a SaaS business, but we can bucket it in that, right, is um, net revenue retention rate, right? And so not only are they growing um, revenue faster than almost any company um, at this scale or at this size in history, but their net revenue retention at this scale is also higher than almost any company that I can remember seeing. And what net revenue retention is, is if you've got a customer um, one year, it's if it's over 100%, then that means they're going to spend more with you the next year. And so um, 120% is good, meaning a customer on average spends 20% more the following year. 130% is amazing. Uh, 170, 175% is like unheard of. And that's what um, Snowflake has been reporting in net revenue retention. And so then when you think about that and what that means for revenue growth is to grow their revenue, they can grow it from just continuing with their current customers. Um, and then every incremental customer they add on top of that is just going to, you know, fill that cycle and fill out um, revenue growth a little bit more. Um, you know, generally for Snowflake, when they when they acquire customers, um, it takes them a little a little bit of time. I talked about that before with, with what I saw when I was in consulting with how long some of these um, data migrations and cloud migrations take. Same thing for Snowflake. It might take um, six months, a year, or even a year and a half for a company to really get up and running once they, once they become a Snowflake customer. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, every, literally every company, every quarter the company has reported, they've, they've not only beaten guidance, but they've also, or yeah, beaten their previous guidance, but then they've increased uh, their guidance for the next year. And so back in Q3 of um, 2021, their outlook for the fiscal year 2021 for guidance was $541 million in product revenue. The next quarter, which was, you know, the end of that fiscal year, they reported $553 million. So they beat that previous guidance by $13 million. Uh, then they gave during that quarter, so fourth quarter of fiscal year 2021, they gave guidance for fiscal year 2022. It was product revenue guidance of $1.01 billion. For fiscal year 2022, they reported product revenue of $1.14 billion, which was 12.8%, 12% above that, that uh, previous guidance. And so then they just gave... Um, then they gave out their outlook for fiscal year 2023, 1.89 billion. They just came in with their their first quarter fiscal year 2023 results. Um, they slightly raised their their FY23 revenue guidance. They're still hiring. Their business is getting more efficient with scale, and we've seen you know businesses out there cutting back on hiring. We've seen them cutting uh, their guidance. And the last thing I'll say about Snowflake is is, <laughs> and people laugh at this because they. At their investor day in 2021, they established FY29 guidance uh, or targets of 10 billion in revenue. Uh, and then at that time, because we want a business to eventually be profitable or get close to profitability, show signs of profitability. At that time, so in 2021, they said on 10 billion in annual revenue, they're going to have non GAAP operating income of 10% and non GAAP adjusted free cash flow of 15%. Uh, the reason I was buying. Um, 
and I was very vocal. I shared on Twitter after, after that drop. And then um, even this, yeah, this morning is they reaffirmed their FY 29 revenue guidance or revenue target of 10 billion, but then they increased that non-GAAP operating income to 20%. And that was an increase from 10%. And they increased the non-GAAP adjusted free cash flow to 25% uh, up from 15%. So what I think happened is people are very sensitive to all this economic stuff. They're really worried about um, companies cutting back. Management maybe didn't say the things that investors wanted to hear on the call. Um, but this management team is one of the best in the business. They were previously at ServiceNow, completely turned that business around and set up for success. Um, and then when you look at the scale of Snowflake, even on $10 billion in product revenue in fiscal year 2029, if they're still executing, and we can't just blindly own it, right? We've got to track it along the way. But if that business is still executing and data is still important, which I think it will be, and even more so actually in the future, uh, then there is still the potential for decades of revenue growth. Um, and so uh, that's why I'm willing to own it now. I'm willing to be wrong. I'm, I'm willing to keep buying shares uh, according to the way I invest and being a long-term investor. And I look at um, you know the price of sales multiple coming down. Uh, if if the, it continues to contract, I look at that as opportunities to buy. Um, and then, I mean, the last thing I'll say, and Muji's way smarter on this stuff than me. I, we already went over time. I'm probably talking too much, but um, I use this service called Fast Graphs. You can kind of like graph some stuff in there based on the current analyst expectations out to fiscal year 2028, which could be wrong, but generally the best companies outperform these by a wide stretch. Uh, we've currently got Snowflake's price sales ratio. It's a blended price sales ratio that you get from this Fast Graph software. It's at 27. Out If they hit what I think is the conservative analyst expectations for revenue. Obviously there could be uh, world war three and then everything changes, but we got to invest off probabilities, right. And what we've seen in the past from great companies, um, if they hit those expectations and they're growing at about 30% per year in 2028, then, um, and the price sales multiple drops from 27 to 10. So more than a 50% reduction, that's like 60, 70% reduction in multiple multiple contraction from here, you're still looking at about a 200% total return um, out to 200, uh, 2028, which is about a 20% annualized return. That's with multiple compression of you know more than 60%. So that's why I'm happy to own the stock here. And, and everything I'm seeing from the business and management tells me um, everything's just fine other than some you know short-term unknowns in the economy and, and what their customers are doing. But Muji might have a totally different opinion and, and he's really smart on all the, the tech stuff. For sure, Mood, you'd love to hear some thoughts on uh, Snowflake. Anything Austin said there, uh, if you have any thoughts. He fell asleep while I was talking. Or, yeah, I think that's Mood for I agree with Austin. I think he might have gotten too excited and thrown his phone somewhere. You never know. It's still undecided, so uh, could be a problem there. But definitely love hearing that, Austin. Love having you on this space. That was some great insight there. Um, and definitely will be watching Snowflake. Snowflake is one that's been on my radar for a little bit. Never bought into it. Um, but I had uh, a nice predisposed, uh, a little, I'm well predisposed to it. I couldn't even get it. Well, we're just going to slide on from that. Um, but yeah, I want to keep us moving, slide us into wrap ups, get it quickly and swiftly move on from that. Wish we could scratch from the recording, but we're live. Um, Austin, I want to keep it on you and hear some thoughts on wrap ups. This was fantastic. First of all, everyone, make sure you're checking out all our amazing speakers and make sure you're giving Austin Stock Talk, Brad, a follow, my amazing co host, Wolf Financial. Uh, host 40 hours a week of live free content and then the bullish rippers page we do a lot of really awesome content do some really cool spaces like this one and a couple others um and then we put out a lot of great tweets as well but uh but yeah austin i want to throw it over to you for wrap-ups here if you have any thoughts or anything lingering around for long-term investors uh would love to hear a little bit more maybe what's on your radar if there's any stocks or anything you're interested in and then finally we'd love to hear a little bit more about where we can find more of the stuff that you are doing yeah, thank you. Um, really appreciate it. And th thanks again for having me and, and for doing these spaces. Um, yeah, I mean, so what I've been doing with my portfolio is I have been actually as the market has dropped and everything, everything has dropped indiscriminately, at least the types of companies that I own. Um, I've taken that as an opportunity. And again, this is with a portfolio that is still uh, early in its stages of being built over time. So I'm willing to have larger positions right now than what I would be comfortable with if the portfolio was fully built out because I have more time to add more money. So I've been 
concentrating um, into companies that are showing, you know, more immediate or uh, more signs of becoming cash flow positive or uh, profitable over a shorter period of time than others. And I don't look at that as like a, a loss opportunity cost because it really hasn't mattered for any of these companies. They've all just gotten crushed. And so, yeah, I've been, I've been adding to Snowflake and I, I share this stuff on, on Twitter. Um, so you can see there or my email newsletter, um, which you can find linked on Twitter. Um, but I've just been consolidating into my highest confidence positions. And so I'll just share four right at the top. Snowflake, Datadog, CrowdStrike, and GitLab. Uh, GitLab's probably the exception there. They're they're the furthest away from um, you know profitability, and uh, they're the least efficient business out of those those four, I guess you could say. Um, and then really just yeah, looking to continue scrounging together as much money as possible to to put into these types of companies because I think that this in five or ten years we're gonna look back and um, if we if I wasn't buying them, I can't get, say what anybody else would feel. If I wasn't buying them now, then I'm going to wish that I did. Uh, and if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong and that's fine. Um, the kicker is just, you know, it's hard to know if your income is going to continue. If like, say we do go into some recession or whatever, um, the unknown is if you lose the ability to keep building your portfolio, then that kind of throws a wrench in things. But um, I'm optimistic. I think, I think the like, all these VC firms are out there talking about how it's the end of the world. And it's like, there's these visionaries, right? Well, why weren't you talking about this six months ago or a year ago when, when valuations were just nosebleed? Um, and so if you remember back then, they were talking about how great things were. And so where I think we're at, I think we're at like peak fear and, and sure, maybe it goes down, markets go down more from here. But um, if you look back historically, this is the time to be in.